Will you pray with me? Holy Lord, we see a world that is filled with rebellion against you. We see this in blatant blasphemy of who you are. We see this in the corruption of leaders who act to gain more power and put others down. We see this in unjust ways that people are treated as lesser because of their skin color or their nationality. We see a world that claims to know better than you, than your outdated ways. And yet the reality is that the heart of humankind is not better off despite our technological advances and our higher, higher thought. We are still idolaters, drunkards, slanderous, conceited, selfish, and among other things. For all this, we will see your righteous judgment, a judgment that will turn over every rock that is hiding our pride, that sets itself above you. May we be a people who claim to be watchful of ourselves, to be humble before you. May we remember who our Lord is, who our King is. And by faith in your loving sacrifice and your resurrection and your ascension, we have been brought into your kingdom. The only kingdom that can't fail. The only kingdom that deals with our hearts and leads us into true unity and peace. And while we walk through dark times now and know that judgment is coming, may we be comforted and have hopeful endurance. We can be comforted because you have promised your return. We can be hopeful because you will set things right to bring true peace, to bring to fullness an everlasting kingdom built on love. So dear brothers and sisters in Christ, let our hope be restored by our faithful Lord. Continue to walk with endurance and grow as disciples, learning to apply the ways of Christ our King. Amen. Amen. Well, why don't you open your Bibles to Mark chapter 13, and uh, we're going to look at how good God is in his word today. But today, I hope you guys brought your thinking caps, and I, I hope you brought a pen and paper to be able to write some stuff down, because this is a little bit more of a Bible study, academic Bible study today. Um, and I'm going to give you a lot of uh, stuff to start thinking about as we kind of plant the seeds and lay the foundation for reading through Mark 13. Uh, Mark 13 is a, is a tough section, and so we're going to do our best to, to make sure that we're able to help you walk through it. Um, as you're getting there in your Bible, I want you to think about, has this ever happened to any of you who have kids or who've taken care of other people's kids, okay? So you know how it goes. You plan and you prep and you get excited for a really big adventure, something super fun and exciting that you know everybody's going to be excited about. And uh, then you get there where you're, you're going and uh, you're about ready to jump into it. Let's say you go to Disneyland, let's say, and you walk through the gates and you're right there about to engage and you haven't even gotten started. And the little one looks up at you and says, hey, what are we doing tomorrow? <laughs> you guys ever see this happen, right? Now, what's funny is, to be, to be fair, that it's a very distinct personality type that does this, right? It's the, the personality type is the person who wants to try all the things and experience all that life has to offer, and it's in their DNA, and it's very endearing. It's very endearing. I actually have two of my kiddos are like that. Um, and so uh, I have to admit that it's really endearing. But I also have to admit that when you're about to enter into a place like Disneyland, let's say, this actually happened and you arrive after a long preparation and you barely get through the gate and then they say, what's next? We want to know what's next. It's a little bit defeating, isn't it? But that's not even just kids, is it? Right? Let's not blame the kids. It's, it's adults as well. We as adults have a sickness of working for the weekend, don't we? You guys know what I'm talking about? Uh, there's a, a writer who calls it Monday amnesia. We work hard looking for the weekend. And then when the weekend comes, oftentimes we find ourselves bored looking forward to working again because it gives us routine and we're caught in this repetitive cycle. It's the what's next ethos of our culture. 
And what I want to submit to you this morning is that we might also be heavily impacted by this same spirit of the age, this ethos, even as we read our Bible, especially when it comes to the topic of eschatology. Can you guys say eschatology? Eschatology is the study of the end times, the study of the end times. And today, that's what we're going to be looking at. We're going to be looking at eschatology, but primarily, if you're taking down notes, you can write down this, that we're looking at an introduction to Jesus's farewell discourse, also known as Mark 13. Now, farewell discourse in the Bible, you see guys like Jacob and Moses, these very important men giving final farewells and speeches to their people as farewell discourse as they ride off into the sunset, so to speak. And so when we come to this study of eschatology, which is uh, what Jesus is doing here as he's talking about his farewell discourse, is we sometimes put that spirit of the age, that ethos of what's next into it. And just as with our kids, I think that our intense desire to know what is next on the horizon often detracts from our ability to live in the fullness of the blessings of today. Now, this morning, I hope to show you why I think this is so important to understand, especially within the study of eschatology. And we're going to get into some pretty heady stuff, as I said. So again, I hope you guys are are ready for that. You guys ready for that? You want to study your Bible here? All right. Well, today we're going to be looking at Mark 13. And it's a a section of scripture known as the Olivet Discourse, or Jesus' speech to some of his disciples while on the Mount of Olives. It's paralleled in Matthew 24. And then if you piece together pieces of Luke 17 and 21, it's paralleled there as well. And these sections, especially Matthew 24, are well known by many contemporary Christians as being the sections in which Jesus talks about the events of the last days of mankind more popularly known as the end of the world. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? This idea of the the rapture and the end of the world, it's, it's out there a lot. But what I hope to do today, what I hope to do is to introduce you to this chapter so you can see that it and others like it are not actually about the end of the world. And there's no need for fear and paranoia because it's actually for something else. It is foretelling the future, to be sure. But the primary purposes of why it was included in these Gospels is not for fear and paranoia, not even to look out for what's next. It's for the purposes of, and you can write this down, this is going to be recurring throughout today, it's for the purposes of hope, obedience, and endurance. That's the point of eschatology. It's to urge hope, obedience, and endurance, especially in times of great suffering and distress. So, you know, it doesn't really apply right now at all because 2020 is so easy, right? No, it absolutely does. So today we're going to begin in Mark 13, verses 1 through 2, and we're going to set a bit of a foundation for the teachings over the next few weeks. I'm going to teach this introduction, and then Tyler's going to actually take uh, the next section, and then I'll continue through to the end of Mark 13. And I would highly encourage you that you follow along with us and hear the entirety of Mark 13, not just one of the pieces, because they'll all flow together. As you'll see today, I tried to pack a lot into today, and even that was really hard for me because I want to teach a lot longer on it. Um, So you'll kind of see. But let's go ahead and jump into our text and go ahead and read. And I'm going to read verses 1 and 2, and then just for context, I'm also going to read verses 3 and 4, okay? It says in verses 1 and 2, And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Now, Tyler's going to go into more detail on verses 3 and 4 and those that follow, but the first thing I'll give you here today, and you can write this down, is I'm going to give you an introduction to the topic of eschatology. An introduction to the topic of eschatology. The word eschatology comes from two Greek words, eschatos and logos. Everybody say eschatos. It means last. And everybody say logos. It means word. So it's a word about the study of, of the things that are last, or it's the study of the last things is another way to put it. In our current day, it is often equated with the people who come up with predictions that usually include dates of Jesus's physical return, and everybody gets weirded out by it, 
and then it doesn't come to pass, and then everybody laughs at the person. That's usually what it's equated to. It's things like the Left Behind book series and movies. You guys know what I'm talking about. And when we look at the Bible, we actually don't see that. What we actually see is that it's very much more nuanced than that. And this is why so many people, honestly, many of you probably as well, kind of shrug your shoulders at the topic of end times and kind of throw up your hands like, who who can really know what's going on? Because can we all agree it is confusing? You guys agree with me on that? The end times is confusing. And there are so many different opinions out there. Some of them seem very much so to have validity based on the word. I've done a lot of studying and I have a lot more to do. But even in looking at all the various opinions, you can find solid pieces that kind of make sense. And so I'll talk about that in a second as well. But for us to truly search out the things of God, anything in the Bible, we can't just shrug our shoulders and, you know, say, oh, I don't really know. We need to tackle this hard subject. And I want to try and lead you through that. You see, in the Bible, we see a lot of foretelling. So to dismiss prophecy and, and future events is to dismiss a quarter of the Bible. There's a quarter of the Bible that at the time it was written was talking about future events. Now, some of those items are assured. Some of them have already occurred. And others of them are if-then statements, like if you obey, then you'll be blessed. If you disobey, then you'll be cursed. But when we look at the foretelling that is assured, we have to recognize that it is not all about what will happen in the future from 2020. In fact, much of the foretelling, most of that quarter of the Bible that's talking about the future has nothing at all about what will happen at the last day. But as I'd like to show you today, what it's talking about is what has already happened in Jesus Christ. The culmination of the prophetic mountain is not yet to come. It's already happened. Everything from here on out, including the second coming of Christ, including the resurrection and judgment, they are simply the culmination rolling downhill to its eventual consummation, if that makes any sense. So let me show you a couple of examples of some of the places that we see. And I'm just going to cherry pick two verses here, and you'll see why I give them to you. From even the very beginning of the book of Genesis, the Bible has statements that require future fulfillment. For example, here's one from Genesis 3.15. This is in the section commonly known as the the curse that's pronounced on, on Satan and on Adam and Eve. And he says to Satan, to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, this is not a bold in your face prophecy, but it is speaking about something to happen in the future from that point in in the world where the seed or the offspring of the woman. Okay. And just so you know, in the language, the word is Tzerah in the, in the Hebrew, and it means literal seed. Now, do seed have women or women have seed? No, they don't. Right. The women have seed, right? Some of them, uh, you know, if we're talking about planting plants, but as far as biological procreation, women do not have seed. And so this is an odd thing. So in other words, a woman would conceive and produce offspring. And what will this offspring do? Uh, this offspring will crush the head, kill the serpent, the adversary of God. But in the process, he'll get bitten by the serpent, which in those days would have been a viper who would have killed the person. So guys, who is it that will crush, who has crushed the head of the adversary and in the process was lethally killed? There we go. Good Sunday school answer, right? Very good. Jesus. Okay. So we know this was fulfilled in Jesus. Well, then we find those statements on the future that are clearly about things that will happen in the last day, not just fulfilled in Jesus, but in the last day, the day that deals with the final consumption, consummation of of Christ installed as king over the nations, the day that includes resurrection of humanity and judgment to either everlasting contempt or righteousness. So here's one from the book of Daniel. Would you all look up at the screen there? Daniel chapter 12, verses two through three. It says, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So we can pretty easily understand this one. Has this happened, guys? Has the resurrection occurred and there's people living to everlasting life and some to everlasting judgment? No, the resurrection, the final resurrection has not occurred. So this is speaking of the last day, okay? 
So those are pretty easy to see. One's fulfilled in Jesus, one's not yet fulfilled. But then there's a third group of prophecies and a a group of foretellings. And these include more ambiguous prophecies or foretellings, such as with Mark 13, where we ask ourselves, have these happened or have they not? I'm confused. You guys know what I'm talking about? This leaves us with the present confusion around future events. So in our text that we're going to be reading in in Mark 13, there's earthquakes and wars and rumors of wars. Is he talking about those that have already happened, those that are happening, or those that will happen? And this is where we can break down interpretation of eschatology into four main views. Okay, you guys still with me? You guys still with me? Okay. All right, so let's break down this idea of looking at these in interpretation into four main views, okay? You can write these down if you're taking notes. And I promise that this will all be really important as we go through Mark 13. This, just, this isn't just filling your heads with empty facts. This is very important. Now, these ideas, these views of interpretation are primarily based out of looking at the book of Revelation. But they're very helpful in texts like the one we're going to cover in Mark 13 to give us an understanding of the various ways you can view it, okay? So the first one is what's called idealist. Everybody say idealist. Now, what this refers to is that much of the foretelling and prophecy in the Bible, especially the book of Revelation, is symbolic alone and meant to communicate God's triumph over evil. In other words, it's not literal things that will happen. It's just symbolic. Now, while there are some valid arguments for this view, and it's important in uh, eschatology to understand the symbolic, as you'll see in the future when we go through other books, Uh, We will not spend much time on this specific interpretation because we tend to see at this church prophecy literally fulfilled in Christ. And so therefore, we also see prophecy of the future as it will literally be fulfilled. Why would it be literally fulfilled in Christ and then not literally fulfilled in the future? Does that make sense? Yeah? Okay. Second is is an interpretation view called historicist. Everybody say historicist. Now, you can already kind of understand what this is. This is where we, as New Testament believers in the the 21st century, we scan history to see where a historical event and a prophecy fit hand in glove 100%. And this is a very valid view in in many cases, and it's how we'll teach the Bible, uh, teach prophecy in this church and land in this camp in many cases. But it's not 100%. Statements that Jesus literally fulfilled, we will say they were fulfilled in historical events. But the temptation with holding on to this view too tightly is that you will take it and wedge it into uh, other prophecies that aren't fulfilled in history. Okay, And so this, uh, this is not one that you want to wedge yourself into. Well, third, not only idealist and historicist, but also a third one called preterist. Everybody say preterist. Okay, so idealist, historicist, and preterist. The preterist approach sees many of the prophecies, especially the New Testament prophecies, as having been fulfilled in the first century AD. So it's like historicist, but it's primarily the first century AD. In a way, this view combines the idealist and historicist views and states that we, what, we, uh, what can be seen as literal fulfillment is historical, but any prophetic statements that cannot be seen in literal fulfillment within the first century must therefore be symbolic. So some of what I teach from Mark 13 will seem like it falls into this category, category of being fulfilled in the first century. So technically it could be this. But what I will teach largely is a combination of historical and then the next one, which is called futurist. Everybody say futurist. So this is the last one, futurist. And this is the approach that gives room to the fact that many of the Old Testament prophecies were indeed fulfilled in Christ's first coming. But overall, many of them are still waiting to be fulfilled in the future. That's the name. Okay? So there are the four views that you can always look at and understand. This is how people interpret a lot of the foretelling. So as we have that in mind, let's pause for a second and let me give you a few caveats that we need to remember when we're discussing eschatology. To be clear, what you will find as you are taught at this church is that I teach what's called an eclectic view. Okay? Eclectic is just a combination of some of these. Now, why do I do that? Right now, uh, after Mark, what we're planning on doing is going through the book of Daniel and then the book of Revelation afterwards, because eschatology is a huge topic right now 
because everybody thinks that because we're in a pandemic, it's the end of the world, just like they did in 1918, if you go back and read the history. So we're going to be going through those after we finish Mark. And what you'll find as we go through those is that I'll draw from all four of these interpretive views. Our goal as a church is not to wedge ourselves into a group so that we belong. Our goal overall should be instead to take full knowledge of the context, historical, grammatical, and canonical context of the text in front of us and interpret it based on those filters, not just wedge ourselves into a given view. Okay? So that's, that's how we're going to try and interpret it. A second caveat, though, is even with doing that, I and we as your, your elders and pastors and teachers are finite and fallible. There are differing views on this topic, and that is okay. So even if I teach of you and you're like, no, I just don't agree with it, guess what? You're still saved. Okay? Now, I say that facetiously, but a lot of times people get really concerned when they disagree with the pastor. You guys are more than welcome, especially on the topic of eschatology. Okay? So we can have some fun conversations over coffee with our masks on, socially distanced, right? Um, about eschatology, and it's going to be okay. You're still saved. I still think you're a brother and sister. Hopefully, you think the same about me. Okay? Um, and so this topic is a secondary topic. It's not a topic that's part of salvation. Does that make sense? So do your best not to make this the main topic of your faith. Now, at the same time, it's easy to get sucked into the conspiracy theories and the paranoia and the political connotations of especially the futurist view where we're always looking for the mark of the beast and the Antichrist, right? You guys know what I'm talking about, right? It's super easy to get sucked into that. So I want to just encourage you, try to stay away from that. It's not the priority, as I'm going to show you in a little bit, okay? So there's differing views. We are fallible. We may be wrong when we're teaching you this, but we're going to try the best to stay in context. And then a third caveat is that over the years, the reason this is so confusing is because the dominant and popular view in the church has changed. In the early Christian church, the the patristic era, the first few hundred years of the church, and even up into the Protestant reformers, uh, after the first century, the primary view was that New Testament prophecies were all historical, that they'd already occurred except for uh, a portion of Revelation, okay? In other words, over time, history has changed and the primary view has changed. So why do we have a different one now? Well, I'll get more into this when we talk about Daniel and Revelation, but just as a synopsis, with the movement of time, the influence of cultic groups like Mormonism, and the Watchtower Society, now known as Jehovah's Witnesses, came along in the 1800s. There was another movement over in England called the Plymouth Brethren, and these groups all started to kind of combine into this what's called apocalyptic view of futuristic end-of-the-world ideas, and it became very popular to the point where when the Civil War hit and then eventually World War I, the pandemic of 1918, and then World War II, These things started happening. You throw in that Israel became a nation in 1948, and all of a sudden the lid gets blown off of this view. And as I'll show you when we go through Daniel and we go through Revelation, it makes sense why many people thought that. But as time has gone on, we've seen that as the book that was written in 1987 said, there aren't 88 reasons why Jesus is returning in 1988. That book was false and you shouldn't read it. Okay, hopefully you get that. Okay, but we have to be careful with this futurist view because for pretty much 1,800 years of the church, it was not the primary view, okay? And so be careful with that. I could go much further on that, but for the sake of time, I'll leave it there. So overall, we just need to be very open-handed on this topic, very gracious, and continue to study and be willing to adjust our understanding as we gain more knowledge, okay? Can we do that? Yeah? For myself, I come from a background, just so you know, I come from a background, a family, and a church that focused very heavily on future events and trying to find out how headlines match the Bible. And to be clear, I think that was out of a good heart that wants to follow Jesus and hopes for his return. I don't, I, I, I don't think that that's negative at all. But over time, as I've studied the word more and more, I've shifted to what I've found personally is a much more orthodox and traditional view that has great basis in the biblical text as well as the historical view. And so I'm being just honest with you guys. This is the position from which I will be teaching. Now the question becomes, 
Hans, how does this help us in discerning and understanding Mark 13? Okay, stop going off on tangents. Let's focus back on the text. Well, the reason I'm giving all of you this is because it will be helpful for Mark 13. Because we need to understand these views, because largely the discussion on this chapter and the equivalents in Matthew and Luke fall into the spectrum between uh, futurist and historical or preterist, okay? Uh, Futurist, it's going to happen in the future. Preterist, it happened in the first century. And the tough part is that it is not all or nothing. Some views have divided the chapter up and said the whole thing is futurist. Other views have done the same thing. It's all fulfilled in the first century, and some of it's symbolic. But others have kind of divided it up so that it's partially preterist and partially futurist. And that's what I'm going to be teaching you. So guys, this is confusing. So if you're sitting here right now going, I don't understand a word you're saying, Hans, just follow with me because it is confusing. We need to acknowledge that. Can we acknowledge that? Okay. So throughout Mark, most of the commentaries, they've agreed on what's been happening in Mark and what's being said. The second you get to Mark 13, the commentaries all diverge into different directions, right? And that's because there are so many opinions. So even as we go through this, I want you to hear my heart. Let's attempt to be extremely humble and open-handed as we look at this text. The first popular way to see it, as I said, is 100% futurist. Everything that's here, it'll happen seven years before the return of Christ and through that period of time. A second popular way is to say it's 100% having occurred in the first century AD, and anything that doesn't seem like it did in history is symbolic. And then the various other opinions parse things out, as I said. So with each section, I'll do my best to guide you. Okay, now that your head is probably spinning a bit, let's try and get back to a simple place so we can focus on what the text says. And so that's where my second point this morning is this. You can write this down. The focus of eschatology is the kingdom and its king, not the events leading up to it. The focus of eschatology is the kingdom and its king, not the events leading up to it. I know that's a long point, so I'll give you a moment to write that down. Now, in our contemporary culture, as I said a moment ago, the predominant view is what's called futurist. Within that view is a very popular one that I used to subscribe to personally, and I used to teach in this church. And so some of you have been around long enough, you're going to understand what I'm talking about. It's a view that's called the rapture or the secret rapture, okay? And in that view is basically this idea that the world gets worse and worse. It basically goes to hell in a handbasket, and then all of a sudden... God reaches down, plucks out his people so that it can get really bad, and then they're safe, okay? You guys may have heard of this before. Now, to be fair, there are biblical texts that seem like they play in that way, and I'll I'll talk about those in future teachings uh, if you guys hang out at this church for a while. Um, But it is, honestly, a really great teaching to believe in. Why? Because there's no pain or suffering. Isn't that awesome? I mean, who likes that view? Raise your hand. Like escaping pain and suffering is awesome. And that's why it makes a really good, um, a good view for folks. It's got a ton to do with our desire to not go through trauma, right? How many of us are like, today's going to be traumatic. I really am looking forward to it, right? Gosh, it's going to be terrible the last seven years before Jesus comes. I hope I can hang out, right? Nobody says that. And so it makes sense. And I don't fault anyone who holds this. And to be clear, some of our leaders still hold this even though I don't and teach it differently. And we're still brothers and sisters. We still love each other. So if you hold the view of the rapture, please don't feel like I'm beating you up here. It's a solid view. I held it for basically about 35 years of my life. Okay? So if you hold it, that's awesome. Continue to hold it. Let's have coffee, socially distanced with masks on, and we'll talk about it. All right? But unfortunately, there's one problem with this view, and I'll tell you what it is. It tends to shift our focus onto the topic of the rapture as the solution to our problems, as opposed to Christ reigning in his kingdom, resurrecting us to eternal life. There's a problem because when you say a statement like, boy, I I hope in the resurrection, well, that makes sense because that's what Jesus has taught us because that is the beginning of him fully ruling and reigning and the new heavens and the new earth. There's a hope in that. 
the rapture has nothing to do with him. It has everything to do with us getting out of suffering. And while that's not a reason to disbelieve it, I, I think that that's really interesting, as I'll show you. Because remember back in my introduction about the idea of always looking out to tomorrow, what are we doing tomorrow, without first understanding the joy of today? I find, unfortunately, that the rapture propagates this. Because people are so busy waiting for the rapture to occur, thinking that everything's going to start then, that they don't focus on the fact that the kingdom is here now, and the king is already ruling and reigning. And the reason I warn a bit about this, even though, again, there are strong arguments for it, I have good brothers and sisters who believe in this, even in the church, even in this church, is that it will cause us often to push an interpretation of that futurist mentality and the rapture onto sections of, script, of, of, text, uh, onto sections of text where it doesn't fit at all like Mark 13, okay? And so Mark 13 is a great example that the context does not support for the entire thing, a futurist view. Pieces of it do. But for the context of Mark 13, we need to acknowledge that what Mark is doing here is he's calling on the immediate context of chapters 11 and 12, which we'll look at in a second. And even more so, he's using tons of thematic elements from the rest of the Old Testament to help us point to the fact that the majority of this section was fulfilled, the majority of Mark 13 was fulfilled in the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., It's already done. And because of that, the message we get out of it is not look for all these signs. It's actually, guys, calm down and carry on. Jesus is king. It's going to be okay. That's the majority of this message. And Tyler will go into that a little bit more next week. But let's look at some of the thematic elements here. Would you turn your Bible back to uh, what Jeanette read to us earlier from 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 1. 1 Kings chapter 9. Verse 1. Give me an amen when you get there. All right. It says, As soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord, the house of Yahweh, and the king's house, and all that Solomon desired to build, Yahweh appeared to Solomon a second time, as he appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I've heard your prayer and your plea, which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house, that's the temple, that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you will walk before me, as David your father walked, with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off uh, Israel from the land that I have given them. And the house that I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. And Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. Notice this. And this house, the temple, will become a heap of ruins. Does that sound familiar to anything that we read in Mark 13 already? Not one stone will lay on another, okay? Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss, and they will say, why has Yahweh, why has the Lord done this to this land and to this house? Then they will say, because they abandoned Yahweh their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, Yahweh has brought all this disaster on them. This section sets up the ideas that are used in the prophets to bring correction and conviction to Israel. They were supposed to have a king that would lead them in the ways of the Torah so that they reflected Yahweh's heart to the world. And if they would do this, or if they would not do this, God promised that the temple and the nation of Israel would be punished and cast out of his sight. Here's another example of that prophetic judgment from Micah chapter 3. Take a look at this. This is Micah chapter 3. It says, Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice. And make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads, the leaders, give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. 
Now, this is very much referenced even in the section that we just read from Mark 13, where the disciples go, check out how amazing this temple is. In essence, they're basically saying, Jesus, isn't it amazing how much we've done? Surely God is with us. It's basically this exact same thing. But Mark also calls on other pieces of imagery. Take a look at Ezekiel eleven twenty-two through 25. Remember that Mark 13 started with, and Jesus was leaving the temple. Okay? The incarnate nature of God was leaving the temple. That's not good. He didn't stay. And that's calling upon a reflection from Ezekiel, where Ezekiel had a vision of God's Shekinah glory leaving the temple because the people of Israel were so disobedient. Okay? It says this, Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. Okay? Interesting. That's the Mount of olives. Okay. The same place where Jesus leaves the temple and goes and stands on. And the spirit lifted me up and brought me in the vision by the spirit of God into Chaldea or Babylon to the exiles. Then the vision that I had seen went up from me and I told the exiles all the things that the Lord had shown me. Here, God's judgment on the people of Israel is that they go into captivity, but as they do, his presence leaves the temple because they had not followed what we read in first Kings. They didn't stay obedient to the covenant. Mark is therefore painting, as do the other gospel writers to some extent, the fact that Jesus is God's tangible incarnate presence come to the temple to observe if there is repentance, and if not, to pronounce judgment. So what do you think Jesus' verdict was? Judgment, guilty. Looking back at Mark, chapters 11 and 12, go ahead and go there now, go back to Mark with me, and look at Mark 11 and 12. And what we see there, as you guys can recall just from the headings of the places that we've already looked at, we see Jesus in chapter 11 enter the city as the triumphant king. We see him pronounce judgment on the fig tree, a symbol of national Israel. You can go back and re-listen to these teachings. We see at the center of 11 and 12, a parable of the tenants, where the man uh, lets his land out to the tenants. And when he goes to collect his due, he sends his servants and eventually his son, and they're all killed by the people a picture of Israel killing the prophets and even God's own son. We see Jesus in chapter 12 go head-to-head with the authorities of Israel, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. And then we see Jesus condemn the religious leaders in our final uh, spot there, as we looked at last week, as he commends the poor widow and at the same time condemns the religious system. All of this, dear church, points to the fact that Israel was guilty and worthy of judgment for their breaking of covenant loyalty with Yahweh. This is the context. But then we also have to recognize that Mark is also adding even more pieces. Hans, in two verses? Yes, absolutely. And in all of the chapter. Mark is here presenting Jesus as final authority, judge, and king. He does this by playing off a couple of Old Testament places. The first, and you can write this down on your own, uh, to read on your own, is Zechariah chapter 14. In this, a future uh, happening uh, event is, is pictured where Yahweh comes to Israel. But remember, the Bible says that the Father is spirit. So how can he do that? Uh, what it says he does is that he puts his foot down on the Mount of Olives. Does the Father have a foot? No, but his incarnate Son does. And Zechariah 14, as you can read on your own, says that he will put his foot on the Mount of Olives just as Jesus is here doing in Mark chapter 13. And his point there in Zechariah 14 is to proclaim judgment over Israel and the nations. And in that section, there's a very prominent verse, Zechariah 14, 9, that says this, And the Lord, Yahweh, will be king over all the earth. On that day, Yahweh will be one and his name one. Now we could go into that in great detail as well. This, many theologians believe, will be in the future, in Zechariah 14, as do I. But Jesus in Mark 13 is calling upon that futuristic prophecy as a precursor to his eventual occurrence and coming in Zechariah 14. Are you confused yet? This is like watching Back to the Future uh, number two, where he goes back in time and then forward in time, and then back. In, you know, your brain just kind of gets tired. But Mark is calling on all this to help us understand In Mark 13, verses 24 and 27, you can look in your Bible there. It sounds very familiar. Verse 26 talks about the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Here, Mark is uh, calling on something we've looked at a ton already. Daniel chapter 7, 
Okay, he's calling on Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where it says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Brothers and sisters, these are the contextual views of Mark's allusions for the overall canon, as well as the immediate context of the preceding chapter. Mark is presenting Jesus in chapter 13 as the final prophet, the ultimate king, the authoritative judge, who has come to pronounce judgment upon rebellious Israel. Well, Hans, I thought it was all about him being savior. It is that and all of this. And in the majority of this chapter, as I will show you, it did come to pass with the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And the remainder at the very end of this chapter is yet coming to pass. It will be in the future. Okay. So old Testament says, disobey. You're going to have the temple destroyed. Jesus comes along and says, I'm a prophet. I'm telling you, you've disobeyed. Temple's going to be destroyed. What does he talk about? The destruction of the temple. Okay. That's what he's talking about. When did it happen? 40 years later in 70 AD. Now I share all this context with you to help you set the stage for the rest of the chapter. But more importantly, as I read through, as I read through all of these Old Testament references, I want to give you, I want to ask you a question here. As we looked at all those Old Testament references, what was the focus? Sunday school answer. Jesus, Jesus, the king. It was that God would send a Messiah to act as a final prophet, judge, and king, as well as a priest to reconcile those who are his to himself and to bring judgment upon the disobedient, disobedient and idolatrous religious systems of Israel. Remember back to the idea I shared at the very beginning of this, of this teaching, the idea of always looking out for tomorrow without first understanding the joy of today. If we look at Matthew 24 or Mark 13 or Luke 17, and we think that they're simply for the fact of finding the secret code of understanding when Jesus will return again, we are completely missing the main purpose of these texts, especially Mark 13. Because look with me again at the text. As the very incarnate presence of God was leaving the temple, the disciples who are thinking still in earthly terms come to him and point out the beauty and grandeur of the temple. They say, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. It's as if to say, Jesus, look at the majesty of the temple and all that we've accomplished. Isn't our religious system great? Surely God is present among us because of all the work that we've done, right? It would be like us coming in here and going, look at all these cool chandeliers. Jesus has to be here, right? This temple was enormous, and it was the most beautiful temple in the ancient world. Some stones used to build its foundation were, get this, 42 feet long, 11 feet high, 14 feet deep, and weighed over a million pounds. That's one brick. Gold plating was on the front and it reflected the sun and the pure white stones that made up the rest of the building made one historian say it looked like a snow-capped mountain in the Judean wilderness. It was gorgeous. It was a wonder of the world. But Jesus' response, which quite honestly must have been a major downer, right? Look at the building. Meh, <laughs> right? His response is this. He says, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. It'll all be destroyed, in other words. Why? Because the new covenant, the covenant that Jesus brought, the better way, the culmination of God's heart and reign of righteousness and justice was among them already. Jesus was already there as the Christ. And from this point in the story, Jesus would go on to be killed for the sins of mankind, including yours and mine. He would be resurrected to be enthroned upon the seat of power above all nations, principalities, and powers. And he would show that no other avenue of relationship with the Father is needed. No religion, no sacrifice. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father but through him. And we do that solely through faith because of his grace. Hans, what about last week when we talked about costly worship? Yes, that's a response. But guys, the gospel is that you and I didn't deserve his grace, but he gave it to us anyway. And we accept it through faith. And so when then in verses three and four, they ask Jesus, what are the signs? Many people immediately separate that from verses one and two and go, these must be signs talking about the end of the age. 
and, and the end of the world. But notice what they say there. Take a look with me. Notice the exact wording. Tell us when will these things, what were the these things that were just referred to? The stones being taken down. When will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? In basic grammatical interpretation and context, let's ask, what is the these things referring to in verses 1 and 2? Well, the temple being destroyed. Nothing else. When will our religious system be judged, they're asking. And why is this so important to clarify, we ask? Because it's my submission to you that Mark is communicating through Jesus' farewell discourse right here in Mark 13, that he is the ultimate prophet, he is the ultimate king, he is the ultimate priest to come. He is the ultimate temple. He's the ultimate touch point between heaven and earth, the one that reconciles heaven and earth. He's the ultimate sacrifice because in Jesus, there's no longer a need for a temple where heaven and earth dwelt because Jesus has become that. And he's given his life once for all and became sin for us. And therefore, there's no need for further sacrifice. In Jesus, we have a perfect king who perfectly rules by way of his Holy Spirit within us and through the assembly of the saints. Just because it doesn't work out perfectly is due to our sinfulness, not his perfect glory in our midst. When Jesus resurrected, he also was enthroned and became our connection point with God the Father. So, dear church, rather than asking, what's next? We need to bask in the glorious truth of what God has done for you and I right now. And if you've not submitted your life to Christ, today is the day to do so. You can cry out to him and say, you are my king. I accept your sacrifice. I want to follow you as one of your citizens. And you can do that at home, listening on live stream. You can do that right here because he's waiting with open arms to accept you as a citizen into his kingdom. Dear church, what Jesus has done for you and I, what Jesus has done to overcome our rebelliousness and the effect of our original sin in this world so that we might be saved from sin, death, and hell, this is worth pausing every Sunday to celebrate. We are encouraged to look forward to his next coming. Amen? We are encouraged to do that. Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. But let's not let that distract us from offering constant thanksgiving for what he has already accomplished. Guys, when I go on a trip and I know that my kids know I'm coming back, but they're not sure of the exact day, do I really want them to be sitting by the front door the entirety of the time waiting for me to return? watching the doorknob to see if it turns. There's a sign of dad's coming. No, I want them to go play. I want them to enjoy life. I want them to love one another. I want them to do the work, the housework that they need to help their mom on. I want them to live, not sit and stare at the doorknob, right? All the while, I know that my children want me to return soon, right? And so the second coming is awesome. And it's, it's something we need to look forward to, but let's not let that distract us from offering that constant Thanksgiving. The culmination of prophetic excitement in the Bible is not the second coming. The culmination is the first coming of Jesus. The second coming will simply be the finishing touch to what has already occurred. And so dear church, the focus of eschatology is the kingdom and its king, not the events leading up to it. So this then begs the question, Hans, should we look even at all toward the future in Christ's second return? Absolutely. We should look toward that and cry out for it to happen. But in the meantime, what we need to do is we need to understand not just, not just that um, it's not about these other things, looking for the, the events of the future, but we need to understand the purpose. You can write this down. It's my last point. We're almost done. The purpose of eschatology is not fear but urging toward hope, obedience, and endurance. This is the point of Revelation. This is the point of Daniel. This is the point of Isaiah. This is the point of Ezekiel. This is the point of Mark 13. This is the point of Matthew 24. And you can even maybe write in your notes, right above fear, in parentheses, paranoia. The purpose of eschatology is not fear or paranoia, but urging toward hope, obedience, and endurance. Brothers and sisters, rather than scan the news constantly to figure out how current events fit into biblical prophecy, rather than scan the news to figure out who the Antichrist is or when the mark of the beast is coming, rather than do that, 
which, by the way, is a practice that's as old as the first century. They tried to do that then, and they were wrong then, too. We need to realize that we're in an age where suffering, tribulation, persecution, and the brokenness of this world has been and will be occurring. Looking to see where it gets worse, as if it's a sign, is not the goal of eschatology. In fact, what texts like Mark 13 and the book of Revelation were meant for by the original authors was to urge saints dealing with suffering and tribulation to hope in Christ, obey his rule regardless of the circumstances around them, and endure until the end as the people of God. Let me say that one more time. What texts like Mark 13 and the book of Revelation were meant for by the original authors was to urge saints dealing with suffering and tribulation to hope in Christ, to obey his rule regardless of the circumstances that are happening around you, and endure until the end as the people of God. Dear brothers and sisters, even when the world completely crumbles, we are to keep our hope alive, not because of the rapture, but because of Jesus and what he did on the cross and in his resurrection and what he promises to do when he returns. Even when our internal fear and rebellious hearts or anxiety cause us to wonder what life in rebellion would look like, and even when the world acts in injustice and we believe it's time to get ours and to protect ourselves above others, we are instead to choose obedience to our king so that in the midst of suffering and persecution and trial, we shine all the more greatly or brightly as his saints. And when we think the world is going beyond that and it's crumbling even further, even when we don't know if we can handle one more negative news article, one more cable news argument, one more negative social media post, or one more election cycle, because I really don't know if I can, dear church, we know that we can endure because this world is not our home. We are citizens of this nation second to heaven. And we don't need to worry about suffering because even death can't touch us. We're to endure through hardships, through difficulty, through persecution, and through tribulation. We are to endure. Dear brothers and sisters, I hope that today and in the weeks ahead as we continue through Mark 13, we can see the message of the eschatology in the midst of this chapter. And receive its truth that in spite of all the hard things going on around the disciples at the time, then and now, our future is secure in the eternal kingdom if we are his. And the guarantee of that truth is that Christ accomplished reconciliation between God and man once for all. And he is reigning right now. We don't need to wait for the future. He's reigning right now over those who are truly his. The purpose of eschatology is not fear or paranoia but urging toward hope, obedience, and endurance. Amen? Amen. And that, my friends, is an introduction to the chapter, and we'll take it from there.